This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, University of California law professor and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the George W. Bush administration, John Yu, weighs in on presidential powers and the U.S. Constitution. John Yu is interviewed by the Dean of the George Washington University School of Public Policy and Government, Mark Rosell. So, John, thank you for um, taking this opportunity to uh, discuss your new book. I'm delighted by the opportunity to ask some questions about it. I just read it. It was out a few days ago, so I had a little bit of time to prepare for this interview. I want to start because you, um, you wrote a piece in 2017 that unloaded pretty strong on uh, President Trump for various overreaches in the exercise of executive powers. And now you're presenting him as a defender of the traditional constitutional order regarding presidential powers. Um, I want to ask you, what changed your view? Why, how did you move from where you were before to uh, what you have presented in your new book? Mark, uh, thanks for inviting me to come on with you. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And uh, as you know, I've been a uh, admirer of your work on executive privilege. This would be a lot of fun. I started out wary of President Trump. I wasn't a supporter of his in the 2016 election. And the thing that really worried me was that he was a populist and the constitution seems designed to stop populists. Uh, it's fairly anti-democratic in nature in a lot of ways, uh, like the Senate and judicial review and the electoral college. Uh, the presence of the states as important parts of the Constitution. So I was worried when Trump came in as a populist who wants to achieve an agenda that he feels he received a mandate for, that he would strain against or even uh, go beyond the constitutional restraints on his power. And I was worried at the beginning that he was doing that in things like the travel ban, uh, threats to build a border wall without congressional approval. And I, in that early piece, I, I urged him to try to use his presidential powers primarily for national security and foreign affairs or at their height, and instead to understand in domestic affairs that his role is really to enforce the law and then to work with Congress to get legislation passed. I think what happened since 2017 to today is that I found his critics have become the ones who have, I think, gone too far and trying to stretch the Constitution, because I think Trump so enrages them that they've launched attack after attack on his uh, legitimacy. Uh, you know, it's Trump's critics, for example, who have talked about getting rid of the Electoral College, <clears throat> who have talked about uh, packing the Supreme Court to add six new members to get it to 15, who want to return us to a role with permanent, statutorily protected independent councils, uh, which I think criminalize our politics. We want to nationalize large parts of our economy for a Green New Deal. And I think the effect of that has left Trump, who's undeniably using the Constitution more as a shield, who is using the Constitution to pursue his own self-interest. But that leaves him the field of relying on more traditional interpretations of the Constitution. So I argue that either intentionally or unintentionally, he has become more the defender of the traditional Constitution than his critics. Okay, thank you. So... There's a number of topics you cover here from pardons, executive orders, uh, the border wall, the impeachment process. I'm going to try to go through some of these and get your take on the president's exercise of executive authority in these areas. Um, starting with the impeachment, I really do get the point you make that the president did not yield. He did not apologize. He attacked the legitimacy of the process. But you also don't hold the president blameless uh, for how he handled 
the controversial phone call or the Ukraine matter altogether. Um, so my question is, is it really a win for the institution of the presidency and an affirmation of Trump's defense of constitutionalism if he's defending his position in a situation that he himself created and never should have happened in the first place? I think he does in the sense that it reaffirms, at least in my mind, how the Constitution intends us to deal with executive misconduct or abuse of power. Uh, and even though, as you say, maybe Trump created the problem in the first place by his unconventional approach to foreign policy, or even, as some people claim, his mixture of the public interest with his own private political interests, the deeper constitutional question, I thought, was how does the Constitution try to constrain executives? And I thought it really does it in two ways. <clears throat> the election process, I think, is foremost uh, in terms of the framers' view of how you constrain an executive who you think is abusing their powers. If the executive is abusing powers and you elect congressional majorities to oppose him, and you eventually get him out of office. I thought the mistake <clears throat> that occurred here was that uh, impeachment was being used for activity which fell short of the constitutional standard. I'm not one, as I explained in the book, I don't think that impeachment requires a crime. I think high crimes and misdemeanors does include abuse of executive power, but it has to be a serious one. And it seemed to me the kinds of accusations that were being levied against President Trump were really designed for the electoral process. It wasn't one of those serious levels of treason or serious bribery, for the bribery of the kind where, for example, the King of France had been paying off the King of England uh, during the 17th century. That's what it seemed to be the framers had in mind. And I think you can see that um, uh, in the founders' requirement that the Senate get to two-thirds before it actually would remove a president, even though it put <clears throat> impeachment in the hands of just a simple majority of the House. They wanted to make it difficult to remove a president through impeachment. And that would then funnel the kinds of fighting we saw take place in impeachment should be properly funneled into the uh, electoral process. Let me go back deeper into some of the circumstances that led to that. The president likes to talk a lot about a deep state of officials who he believes, and you give him some defense here in the book, uh, did not accept, as you point out, the legitimacy of the 2016 election. And in the president's view, they have acted to try to undermine a duly elected president. My um, ask here is that you address the very complicated issue of the principal loyalties of people um, who swore an oath to the Constitution and not to their branch of government or to the president, uh, and who believe that they have an obligation to honor that oath by bringing to the attention of authorities, whether it's internal oversight or committees in Congress, potentially illegal or unethical behavior? Well, I, th I think this issue arises twice. It's not just impeachment, but also the Russia collusion investigation. Right. I think in both cases, and, 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 it, and it raises a deeper, I think, philosophical or political theory question about government. And again, I'm not claiming Trump is thinking deeply about political theory, but I think by his pursuit of his rational political self-interest, he is sort of advancing this greater constitutional good, which is more tied to the 18th century constitution. So let me sort of describe what he was fighting against in a way, which is uh, it, whether it's the FBI and Jim Comey and the headquarters staff, or whether it's, I think, members of the Foreign Service and the Permanent National Security Council staff. Oh, that 
I don't think of it as a deep state the way I think the phrase actually comes from Turkey <laughs> in the Turkish bureaucracy. Uh, I think of that more as a kind of progressive era bureaucracy, the idea of which was most important public policy decisions are really technical or scientific or professional. And so you want to delegate power over those decisions to those experts and you want to insulate them from politics, not increase political control, but in fact, reduce it. I think this is very much Woodrow Wilson's uh, thought and it had a great impact on our constitution. I think that, that you see that in, I think in the FBI, national security bureaucracy and in uh, the foreign service. Uh, Trump, uh, I think embodies to me a more 18th century view of what the executive branch is about, which is uh, right, we the voters elect the president through the electoral college, but we elect the president He's the only one charged with the executive power and enforcing the laws. And then everyone in the executive branch who's conducting foreign policy, who's enforcing the laws, are doing it as an assistant to the president. So it's a much more political vision of the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy is responsive to the president, and we hold him accountable through or her accountable through politics. And to me, that, that's what happened in the impeachment and in the Russia collusion investigation is that you had the permanent experts, the Foreign Service or the FBI, uh, conclude that the president essentially was unfit for office. And so they were, uh, to me, they were doing something that would not have computed to the founders, which is they were challenged the head of their own branch as unfit. That's not really their job. <clears throat> now, I think you're, as you say, there is this impeachment system and Congress does have the right and the power to remove presidents of fields have abused that power. And of course, they're going to gather some of that information from the executive branch, from people who work there. Uh, so in that sense, I don't think impeachment was off. In fact, I don't see how else impeachment would run other than people saying, oh, the president misused his powers. A lot of those witnesses would be from the executive branch. To me, it was that the standard that the House and some members of the Senate were using as the high crimes and misdemeanor stands were not high enough. Instead, I would have thought all those things in impeachment were much more appropriate for oversight hearings to be brought out for spending cuts or uh, rejection, you know, the usual tools that Congress uses to fight with the executive branch and ultimately putting it before the voters, as we will this November. This is all going to be before us when we vote on the president this November. And I think that's the better solution. You talk a lot about um, executive powers and prerogatives and Trump defending the institutional presidency. Um, and I wanted to go through some of the different powers of the presidency here. Uh, but starting with executive orders, I think that's an easy one to talk about. Um, of course, the president has the authority to reverse actions by executive order, or at least earlier um, executive orders. But I'm just asking, is signing a bunch of executive orders real presidential leadership? In other words, if we have a President Joe Biden next year. I would imagine he's going to reverse a really large number of executive orders. Is there more of a legacy for a president to engage in the traditional process of negotiation, building consensus, getting compromise in Congress, and getting the laws through the system that are going to have a greater deal of permanence, permanency, rather than just issuing willy-nilly large numbers of executive orders and saying, I did a lot of things? Yeah. I think that's a great uh, point, Mark. You know, I don't, uh, you know, the book is, uh, doesn't approach it exactly the way you did, but I think that's quite right. I, I guess the way I think of it, 
is that the president has this power of reversal. I thought that was something new I thought of was you collect a lot of things presidents can do unilaterally, and they actually have to do with just reversing what the last guy did or the last woman did. Uh, it's interesting. You're quite right. If the president only operates through executive orders, he is laying his achievements vulnerable to simple reversal when, say, President Biden comes in this January 21st. Uh, only by working with Congress to affect statutory change uh, do you give it a kind of long-lasting uh, legacy and permanence. Uh, so I quite agree with you. So uh, yes, President Trump, like President Obama, have been frustrated by the infighting of Congress, have not been able, <clears throat> excuse me, to get a lot of their agenda through. And so naturally, they're going to turn to executive orders. But I don't think it's permanent so long as as I think the Constitution says, so long as presidents have that power to quickly and immediately reverse any use of unilateral executive power by their predecessors, I would just point out, we might talk about it later, this, I think that was somewhat thrown into doubt by the Supreme Court's recent decision on the DACA case, which really surprised me. Actually, in the book, I said I thought it would come out the other way, and then I went through all the implications that would occur if the court actually didn't allow President Trump to reverse the DACA program. So on that, let me take a, a contemporary application then um, of this particular issue. Can the president issue an executive order to prohibit evictions, as he's said recently uh, that he might like to do, even though it was Congress that approved a temporary moratorium? Um, would that be an appropriate use of an executive order? Um, or you know, should the president simply work through the lawmaking process here as well? Um, and let me add to that TikTok. Can the president um, uh, you know, issue an executive order banning TikTok? <laughs> I'm sure lots of parents want the president to have that power <laughs> right now. <laughs> but it's really interesting. I think this is, uh, you know, this power that's discussed, that President Obama, I think, creates in DACA for the first time, this kind of creating a program by not fully enforcing the law. Um, it, which leads to the DACA and DAPA programs, it has certain limits. So, for example, the rent eviction idea, I haven't studied that closely, but generally to me, eviction law is a state law issue. Right. And so I don't see how the federal government, by restraining its own prosecutorial discretion, can have an effect on the states and whether they're going to affect people. If there's going to be any kind of a eviction waivers at the federal level, I mean, at the, in state courts because of the federal government, it's actually more the federal government as a whole that's expanding its power by, I don't know, attaching it as spending uh, riders for or conditional, conditional spending when the states accept, uh, I guess, pandemic relief money. But it's not the same thing. Uh, also, I'd say with TikTok, that to me is actually more of the traditional use of the uh, executive orders that you were mentioning earlier, Mark, that uh, either their inherent use of inherent executive power, but they can also be, and the more common executive order, I think, is the execution of some delegated power from Congress. And as you know, Congress has given a huge amount of power to the executive branch to regulate international economics for national security reasons. Uh, already, I believe there have been uh, national emergencies declared for sanctions purposes with regard to China and its businesses. Uh, a lot of its companies and practices are under investigation now by the FBI. So if President Obama, I'm sorry, President Trump bans TikTok, that actually to me seems constitutionally straightforward. It's just an exercise of the, it's called AIPA, the 1977 law 
that gives the Congress gave the president uh, to sanction national uh, companies, transactions for national security. It's if the president, if President Trump were to try to do it unilaterally without any congressional authority, that would be a really difficult question because I don't think without Congress, the president has an international economic sanctioning power. Let me turn to another contemporary issue. And to be fair to you, the author, I know um, you were not writing during the pandemic, uh, like with all books, you know, it was published in late July, but I was looking at your citations. I think the last source you cited was February of this year. And the- Guilty uh, as charged. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I beg yeah, the publisher to let me include several it. Several months, you know, dr- yeah. lag time there. Yeah. Um, but, but I think it's a good topic to bring up with regard to the exercise of executive power, right? Because this is absolutely the biggest challenge of presidential leadership of our time. Um, and none of us expected this challenge. And I'll point out, by the way, at one point you said challenges at home don't tend toward the unforeseen and unprecedented. Unfortunately, that's what happened in this particular case. Um, but, you know, you've defended- well, it came from it. China. It came from abroad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, right. So it was, but it, but, it, but it became a domestic crisis, right? And the president has an obligation to establish his leadership here in the country, has been really hungry for that. Um, and, and in the book, you know, which again, uh, you laid it to rest before the pandemic, so uh, you, you didn't have a chance for this manuscript to approach the president's leadership. But I want to ask you to apply it in a sense, because, you know, you've defended Trump as a strong and vigorous national leader. Um, but where was that leader during the outbreak when he said, effectively, the, to the states, you're on your own, the federal government's not a shipping clerk, you know, when the governors were pleading for some help getting protective equipment, and also in a new edition of this book. I don't think you can ignore the pandemic as a new chapter, right? Yeah. Uh, the exercise of presidential powers. What are you going to say uh, in that next edition when you when you discuss the pandemic and this president's leadership? You know, I'm glad I'm glad you raised that because that's uh, the chapter I wish I could have written after you know, after the deadline yeah. uh, for getting the manuscript in, which I oh, thought right. would wrap up nicely with the end of impeachment. But yeah, this during this presidency, things just keep happening that themselves would consume a whole presidency over and over again. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, so it's interesting. I, uh, you know, the, it's an odd thing. People are criticizing Trump for being a dictator. They impeach him for having too much executive power uh, in February. And then, you know, within a month, people are saying, why aren't you doing more? Uh, and this, I think, it's, I think it's not really the separation of powers that's the problem. It's federalism. Uh, the Constitution, no matter what the president's powers are in terms of filling in what the federal government can or can't do, uh, the federal government still has limits. And I think actually this is where uh, I think it would have maybe uh, gone along with my thesis is that Trump actually has been respecting the federalism limits on his powers, even to his own political detriment. You know, the populace in him, I'm sure, wants to set closing dates and reopening dates for every business in the country. And would have wanted to, you know, set standards for social distancing, but the Constitution doesn't give the federal government that power. As, uh, the Constitution is a one of limited federal enumerated powers, and we've all long had the understanding that public health and safety is primarily a state and local issue, and that the federal government can come in as a support, but the front line, you know, the trench warfare of it, fighting a pandemic or disorder is going to always be 
city and state local authorities. And so I think the federal government has been doing what it's supposed to do. You know, it can provide money to the states. It can provide equipment and personnel and resources. Uh, it can fund a vaccine. It can fund technical research. It can spread information. But the federal government doesn't really have the people. It doesn't have the, you know, the actual mechanisms of government to take care of a nationwide pandemic. You think about, uh, for example, how many people does the federal government even have? How could they even enforce a pandemic uh, social distancing system? Uh, I, I like to point that the entire FBI, its entire workforce is smaller than the New York Police Department. Okay. So there's the, the real right, the real agencies of government, the real arm of public power in this kind of widespread pandemic has to come from the state government. So actually, I think this is, it's interesting because I, you know, I think a president who really wasn't conscious of the constitutional limits of his power would have tried to go beyond that. But I think Trump actually, to his political detriment, has stayed within those boundaries. Yeah. I mean, is it a fair question to ask, say, you know, can you imagine an FDR saying, you know, in a situation like this, this is for the states and we're not a shipping clerk. I mean, that's, I think that's what bothers so many people that they expected the president to be, you know, big and powerful and authoritative. And, you know, how difficult is it to say wear a mask, you know, to get there, which, you know, anybody could have done. And and, and as you know, this is why the, and as I argue in the book, this is why the founders created the presidency or you don't, why, why even have an independent executive branch? Why don't we have a Westminster parliamentary system where the, uh, you know, the chief executive is really just the leader of the majority party. You know, the, the president would be Nancy Pelosi right now, right. or would have been Paul Ryan a few years ago. Uh, it's because they wanted a branch of the government to act quickly and swiftly in time of emergency and unforeseen circumstances and crises. And so we expect presidents to do that. And I think it's easier to do that when you have an enemy who's attacking or a natural disaster, uh, some place where the president can either use their own constitutional powers or invoke legislation that provides that emergency power. But something, it seems to me, I, I compare, something like a pandemic uh, is just outside the grasp of a national government. It's just too large a problem. It's too systematic. It's, a, it's, a, it's such a great social problem. It affects everybody that the federal government can't really Right. So he can, he can use the bully pulpit, as you say, Mark. He could say, please wear a mask. Please right. stay socially distant. But he can't, the president nor the federal government can really create the law and enforce it to make you wear a mask or to stay six feet away from each other. So I hope it's not a little off topic, but some scholars of federalism are making the case that maybe this is an indictment of the federalism system itself, right? That we're not terribly well suited for handling this kind of crisis. And you look at Nonetheless, at some of the other federal systems, you know, Germany and Australia, uh, for example, Canada, where they've done a lot better than we have. Is there, is there something inherent to the system that led us to the situation that we're in right now with this pandemic? Uh, and the president really was constrained in, you know, the tools that he had available to solve the problem, I mean, I, as well I, as it's been solved in some other democracies. Yeah, I don't think that uh, actually if President Biden had been president now, or if the president had been Hillary Clinton, I don't know if the outcome would have been all that different than what we have now, just because, as you see, there's this restraint on the president and on the federal government. And you raise, you raise a really interesting point about the, comparing it to the performance of other uh, federal systems. I think our system is a little different in that we have so many state governments, right? Germany and Australia, you know, they don't have 50 different uh, state governments. 
but it's also a call. I think it's also a trade-off. And I do say, do kind of make a small argument about this in that uh, Trump is appointing justices and judges to the federal bench who are big believers in federalism too. Uh, so he has been kind of put, and in other areas, he has been kind of pushing this federalism revolution along that's been going on for, you know, since Reagan, I think. Uh, you're right. If I, I think that the system, the federal system, as you point out, is slow. Um, if you figure out the right policies, then why do you have to go through 50 states to do it? I think the state system is more risk averse, right? It's almost dubious about the idea that we will get the right answer right away. It's actually trying to prevent us from making an affirmative mistake. Uh, it, and as you know, the traditional definitions are allows for experimentation. It allows for adaptation to local circumstances. It allows for competition between governments. Uh, those are all features, it seems to me, of a, of a, a deeper constitutional question, which is, a federal system like ours is, I think, deeply suspicious of human nature and is uh, not, it does not easily assume that you or me or any experts are going to get the right answer right away. And so if you can't, then why would you give any government the power to impose it immediately on the country? Uh, and so you could say, yes, that's also going to mean our system is slow, uh, chaotic, and maybe more prone to make mistakes by omission, by failing to act. Um, it's the, although we aren't going to make a lot of mistakes by omission, by making the wrong choice either. One of the federalism issues, by the way, that came up earlier and continues is the sanctuary cities and the president's threat to withdraw federal funds yeah. um, from those localities. Um, you care to comment on that as a reflection of Trump's view of federalism and how it sort of jives with, you know, what you just said, his deep respect for uh, the institutions at the state and local levels to have their own autonomy in dealing with issues. It's interesting. I mean, he, and it's important, I think, uh, to separate the political rhetoric mm -hmm. from, uh, I think, the constitutional actions. And he hasn't actually tried to compel state and local officers to do the federal government's bidding. Uh, as you, as you know, the Supreme Court has issued a series of decisions we call the anti-commandeering decisions, mm -hmm. which say that state and local officers <clears throat> don't have to or maybe not cannot even enforce federal law because they're not within the executive branch. And so the president can't actually tell them how to enforce federal law. The president can't remove governors. And so the court has said, well, this is one of the reasons why state officers are their own government. They don't enforce federal law. Uh, they don't have to cooperate with federal officials, as you say, in the sanctuary cities. And so the court has suggested, though, that, and this comes out of the Obamacare cases, if anything, that the federal government can try to use essentially bribery to get state and local officers to cooperate with federal, uh, whether it's immigration or drug enforcement or whatever subject. And to me, even though Trump attacks these mayors, right, he attacks governors on TV, when it comes time, though, to actually moving state policy in the federal direction, he seems to rely on the traditional tools. Well, if you don't cooperate with me, well, then we're not going to give you so much money as we did before, which the court said is okay in the Obamacare case, so long as it's not, you know, a huge amount of money. We're not sure exactly what that huge amount, that level is, but the amounts that the Trump administration has been using have not been that high. Uh, and Trump hasn't really tried to order governors or order mayors to follow his program. In fact, I think for the most part, state, and actually even the state of California here, city and states, the whole states have become sanctuary uh, cities and states 
in opposition to the Trump uh, policies and nothing's really happened to them. Right. Okay. Let me, let me change the subject. Um, the border wall, mm-hmm. uh, one of the controversial uses, you know, the mo- among the most controversial uses of executive authority by this president. Here I want to address the president shifting funds out of the Department of Defense to pay for the wall when he did not get the full appropriation from Congress that he had requested. Um, what is the basis for the president's authority to circumvent Congress's power of the purse in this fashion? Um, why do you think the Supreme Court decided to leave this alone? Again, I think critics, and, and the border wall actually has attracted both liberal and conservative critics, uh, right. you know, both sides of the aisle, and senators from both uh, sides of the aisle, I think, voted to try to override the decision. But this wasn't really, to me, a claim of executive power. Uh, to me, what happened is that Congress gave the president quite a bit of power, uh, and tr- Trump is using it as past presidents have. So the what Trump did is right, he declared a national emergency, which is recognized under the National Emergencies Act. And then once there is a national emergency, there is another law that says the president can transfer money between building accounts, essentially. So the interesting constitutional question is really a statutory question is, can uh, the president declare a national emergency with border immigration? Is that the kind of national emergency that Congress had in mind? Um, you know, we've had, uh, you know, you would have thought maybe national emergency was originally like Cuba, right? Would be, right. Uh, not in a, in, a, in a specific event or a specific entity rather than a problem. Uh, immigration is uh, more like a problem, I admit, than like a country or an event. On the other hand, past presidents have done the same. And so that's it's, sometimes I feel like people make arguments against Trump that they did not make with past presidents. So, for example, President Reagan declared a national emergency when the export laws expired. And so he just said it's a national emergency if I can't control ex- exports of sensitive technology abroad. Um, President Obama declared national emergency over the swine flu. So presidents have already in the past used this national emergency. So people say, well, does that mean uh, a President Biden could declare a national emergency over climate change itself? Is that an, It seems to me, when you look at how presidents have used this power and how Congress has repeatedly not tried to define a national emergency, you would say maybe it's impossible to define what an emergency is beforehand. It says to me, yes, there's going to be a lot more flexibility for the next president than to say, well, you said immigration at the border. Well, I can say climate change. Right. Right. So is that the danger there, John? In other words, um, precedents create a presumption of legality. You know, as you said, past presidents have done similar things. Uh, what is, what is really the standing in our constitutional law of precedents that themselves don't really have established standing in any, any language of the Constitution itself or in the evolution of constitutional law via you know, judicial decisions? I don't know what you think about this, Mark. I, I bet we probably think about it uh, differently. So I, I think that the founders, when they put the phrase executive power in the Constitution, uh, and this is a really, I've just sort of, I think, being guided more by Alexander Hamilton's writings in the Federalist Papers. They had in mind uh, you know, energy, unity, speed. Uh, they wanted to face emergencies and crises. 
but they also left it somewhat undefined. Uh, because uh, you know, this is, I think, there's something uh, they struggled over. Well, uh, Hamilton talks about this. Like, how do you uh, design a government to handle everything that's going to come at it that you don't even know about? If you knew about it in advance, you could write a detailed statute to prepare and handle it. So the president is supposed to be there to, you know, declare national emergencies, respond. Maybe it's unwise to try to circumscribe it by written laws uh, because you don't know what the problem is going to be. So how do you check that? As you say, Mark, do you then create, invite the possibility that presidents will, you know, slowly expand their power over time? You know, I would say, first of all, Congress doesn't need to keep refilling the coffers of these accounts, keep recognizing and accepting these emergency declarations. The courts don't have to, as they have been, they don't have to essentially say we're not going to review whether this is a national emergency under the statute. But I think what they expected was that if there is going to be a limit, it's going to be Congress. So, so here I think the founders were pretty clear. They said, we expect ambition to counteract ambition. We expect each of the branches to use their constitutional powers to fight against each other. So yeah, Mark, you're right. The presidents will slowly, I think over time, seek to expand their power because there are gonna be more circumstances in a growing country that People demand them to handle, as you said, people are demanding that Trump handle the pandemic. Why isn't he doing more about the pandemic? Naturally, he's going to want to expand his powers to address that. That's uh, something that's been going on for probably about 100 years, this kind of hydraulic political pressure on the president. But I think the main check on this kind of amorphous executive power was going to have to come from Congress uh, fighting back against it and using its, I think Congress has ample powers to, you know, pull the rug out from under a president who goes too far. But with the border wall, for example, Congress just doesn't have to put any money into the building accounts that Trump is using to transfer money to the border wall if it really wants to stop. And sometimes I think, and this is more of a political science explanation, is it seems like members of Congress don't want to take stands on these difficult questions. They'd rather just blame the president for mishandling a pandemic or going too far with uh, disorder in the streets or uh, are you misusing emergency powers rather than Congress stepping in and saying, well, we're going to stop it or we're going to support in this situation because that right, redounds poorly on them if things go wrong and they have to run for re-election. So are you comfortable then with the president moving funds out of the Department of Defense for the border wall? In other words, the president makes the argument, well, I ran for election. I won. I have a mandate. Um, all presidents say that, of course. And Congress didn't give me the author is, you know, the appropriation that I asked for. So I'm going to find other sources to fulfill my promise. But it goes to your point, Mark, about the, that you start out with the uh, permanence versus the ephemeral nature of executive power, right? Trump can do that for one year, right? Now he had, yes, he can invoke the National Emergencies Act, and then there is a statute which allows transfer. But after that one year, he doesn't get anywhere unless he gets cooperation from Congress. Right. That's the only way to give his border wall long-term, long-lasting funding. If Congress wants to stop him, it's, it's an interesting power Congress has. They have a power to uh, stop the president just by doing nothing, right? They, if they do nothing, then the, the accounts don't get refilled with more money every year. They, Congress has to affirmatively put more money into these accounts that Trump is drawing from, and they continue to do so. Uh, so I think that, that goes to me. What's more, Congress has a lot of tools. They choose not to use them because I think they don't want to be politically accountable. They'd rather, yeah, let the president go out in front, spend the money and take all the heat if it's a bad idea. Yeah. 
Let me, let me turn to the AUMF, which you addressed, the authorization for use of military force enacted by Congress, as you know, in the wake of 9-11. Um, and you say that this presidential authority extended to presidents uh, uh, Obama and Trump. Um, nearly two decades after the initial authorization with the original terrorist organization effectively eliminated, when do these military authorizations end? In other words, do we consider the war on terrorism now, an endless war that gives a president the seemingly limitless authority to use force? Is there, is there an end game here where we can say this is not needed anymore, it can be withdrawn? Again, I think this is more a question of whether Congress is living up to its own duties rather than the president. And, um, you know, I was involved back when I worked in the Bush administration uh, on drafts of that statute. And this was a question that came up. And I actually made uh, an argument at that time on behalf of the Justice Department, similar to when I was making in the broader level with you, that uh, these 9-11 attacks were so unprecedented in our history, maybe not in the history of other countries, but our history. And we didn't really know at that time the form they would, the enemy would take, what kinds of attacks there would be in the future. And so we didn't draft it, and Congress didn't pass a draft that had that kind of limit to it. But it could have. Congress could have passed a statute with a sunset date. And they were thinking about it, and they talked about it, but they chose uh, not to. Uh, and, and if you go back and look at past declarations of war, or authorizations to use military force, they don't have that uh, sunset date either. I, I think in particular, this is something that came up with Vietnam. If the Tonkin Gulf Resolution didn't have a sunset date, Congress corrected it for that, but right, they passed a, a law cutting off all funding for, the, uh, for Vietnam. By the time of 9-11, I think it's safe to say Congress understands this issue now about whether to put a sunset date in, and they chose uh, not to. So I don't think it's, uh, again, it's, I don't think it's a claim of presidents expanding their constitutional power too far when Congress, uh, A, did put a sunset, and then B, Congress continues to provide the money for those military operations. I think uh, from a political accountability standard, uh, Congress, again, always has the ability to cut off executive initiatives to rob them of that legacy and permanence you're talking of, you were asking about simply by not refilling the coffers every year for the things they oppose. And right, at the one hand, you have members of Congress complaining that the AUMF is still in effect. At the same time, they are happy to keep funding the very expensive military operations in places like Iraq and Syria, potentially Iran, Afghanistan. So who's really a constitutional fault here? Right. So do you think Congress should end the AUMF? If they want to, I don't think it's necessary. Here's the other interesting thing. I, I, and this was part of the chapters on Trump and foreign policy I found maybe the most difficult to write because I was trying to figure out what is the Trump doctrine? I mean, it's got to be more than just someone ping-ponging around. Even if they are just a billiard ball ping-ponging around, there's still like laws of gravity that explain why they're acting the way they do. And the hard thing was to step back from Trump's everyday crisis and fighting and figure out what is the larger motivation. And here's, and this, so this is something I thought was really different and interesting about uh, the relationship between the president, the executive and the legislature in foreign affairs and war, which is we've got a president who actually is trying to reduce deployments abroad, who's withdrawing from places, terminating lots of treaties and agreements, 
And Congress is actually the one that wants to stay in those places, right? They don't want to reduce troops in Germany. They don't want to pull out Afghanistan. They didn't want to pull out of Syria, right? They, they, they want to stay in all these agreements, like the Paris Accords and so on. And so that I, to me, that actually showed that the president does have those powers uh, in foreign policy that at least I've always thought he did because if Congress really was uh, the primary branch in foreign policy, if they really were the only branch that could turn the on key on for a war, then how can the president do all these things on the flip side, the negative? How can be the president just withdraw, withdraw troops when he feels like without Congress? How can he terminate these agreements without Congress? It's because that shows, to me anyway, that the president really did have that discretion all along. And it really was just people upset about the president using it to get us into obligations, but not to get us out of them. Let me turn to another topic. Um, there are a lot of areas where you say the president has the ultimate authority to act as he did, um, even though critics complained, of course. And I'd like to get at the issue of the president's constitutional-based right to do something as opposed to should he have done it, right? Mm -hmm. So Trump, for example, can take the country out of international agreements, but was it wise to do so? You know, arguable, people on different sides will have different cases. Uh, some of the pardons that he issued, right, that um, just brought about a huge amount of criticism as to whether they were appropriate, although it seems the constitutional power that the president possesses is absolute in this area. Um, so I'm, I'm asking the question, just because he can do it, um, because he does so in the face of challenges from many in the, in the party establishment, from the foreign policy establishment, opposition leaders, uh, in Congress, is that what really makes him a great defender of constitutionalism and the founding principles of our republic? Um, <laughs> no, I, not at all, actually. I think, okay. uh, and I think you, as a political scientist, are a far better judge of the should he rather right. than can he question. Uh, I, I do think that uh, whether Trump's successful as a president in your sense of should he have enacted these policies is a very different question than whether President Trump was defending the proper prerogatives of the president. In fact, it might be an ironic thing, but it may be that all these fights he had redounds more to the benefit of his successor in office. If it's a, say it's a Joe Biden, the person who's going to enjoy the fruits of all these battles that Trump has been fighting is going to be the next president, right? Because now, you know, the sort of restoration of control over law enforcement and foreign policy and so on, that's been taking place for the four years, the next president will really be able to use those to achieve policy. I, I have to say, I think um, I make kind of the argument in this book and maybe in uh, another book I wrote about 10 years ago, what you're talking about is really how we judge whether a president is great, is not whether they use their constitutional power to the full. It's the harder question I think that's tied up in the executive power, which is, did you use those powers in the right circumstances? Right. Did the president, uh, and so I, I, I think of this as the difference between a, a Buchanan and a Lincoln, right? And so I hope the listeners realize we're talking about James Buchanan and not Pat Buchanan. <laughs> you never know, sometimes maybe Pat Buchanan was president, who knows? <laughs> so, right, so James Buchanan and Abraham Lincoln, they are presidents faced with the same exact, you know, unforeseen emergency or crisis, which is secession and slave, the slavery fight. And, Buchanan, he just chooses not to use his presidential power. He says, 
he actually says this is a problem for Congress to solve. And he asks Congress to study it. Congress appoints a special commission. I'm sure it's still meeting. <laughs> they did come up with any answer. Lincoln comes in and he says, oh, I have these essentially emergency powers under the take care clause, the executive power clause, and I'm going to energetically meet the problem, the challenge of secession. And there he used, right, that was the, Lincoln understood the circumstance demanded, right, a matching response with a broad executive power. But if you're a president, I think, who uses those powers at the wrong time, you know, you seek a broad, you know, you could, it'd be two ways, like Buchanan, there's a great emergency, you do nothing. Maybe that's what people say about Trump and the pandemic. Or I think maybe even worse, there's no great challenge and you still invoke the great powers of the office that are designed only for those emergencies. That can lead to catastrophe. So I would, I mean, that's what happened with Nixon. Nixon, we were actually in a pretty much a period of regular politics and he thought everything was a national security emergency, even so far he thought he could surveil, right, using counterintelligence powers, the Democratic Party. Uh, and so it's that um, application of constitutional power to circumstance, which is really going to determine whether, to me, a president's successful. Okay. So let me stick on the pardons issue here, right, because the president has issued, candidly, some very controversial pardons. Joe, yeah, I quite agree with you. You know, no doubt about that. Um, what's troubling to some traditionalists is that he's worked outside the traditional screening process of the Office of the Pardon Attorney in the Department of Justice. Um, I would argue clearly it's constitutional for him to do that. The uh, Article II power of the, uh, of the president to pardon is absolute. Uh, there's nothing that says he has to go through the traditional screening process. But I think that process there is uh, exists for the purpose of trying to protect the president from issuing ill-advised pardons. So, um, you know, is, it, is the president wise to just go it alone in circumstances like this and not go through the traditional uh, framework in the Department of Justice before considering pardons? Um, you know, I would not have, I thought the part of Roger Stone was uh, ill-advised. I mean, there was no advice. It was just a bad decision. Yeah. Uh, I think if you were to, Pardon Manafort, you know, also someone convicted in the independent, a special counsel investigation that would be uh, unfortunate uh, misuse of the pardon power. As you say, it's absolute. Uh, but, I, you know, when I think of things like the pardon office or uh, other claims like that, it brings to mind, again, this conflict or tension within our government between the Constitution, which does give these sort of uh, sole responsibilities and powers to the president alone, and then an effort. I think really uh, inspired by the progressive movement in government last century and at the beginning of the last century, right, to professionalize everything, right? The, the pardon office is almost expresses this idea, oh, there's kind of a technical way to decide between good pardons and bad pardons. When I think to the founders, they would have seen this as, oh, that's just an inherently political decision. And we will just judge whether it's right or wrong when the voters vote on Trump uh, rather than saying, oh, there's a professionally right answer. To like you. So I, as a lawyer, I would say, I don't think this Roger Stone's deserving of a pardon. He violated the law. He, you know, impeded, obstructed an investigation of Congress. He threatened witnesses. Um, but I don't think it's really a legally correct or incorrect answer. I think it's really just a political decision that the president makes that we have to hold him accountable for uh, in elections. Even though, yeah, and I, and I think it was a bad decision. Yeah. So let me talk about 
the institutional prerogatives of the legislative branch. So you're talking a lot about the exercise of executive powers and the president's authority, you know, the president's right to pardon, as we've been talking about, um, that you've acknowledged the president has the absolute right, and I agree with you there. Um, but what about the House's impeachment power, which you say is subject to a very high standard? Uh, famously, Gerald Ford once said that the standard for impeachment is whatever a majority of the House says it is, mm-hmm. right? It can just be by uh, consensus of the House of Representatives. I think he wanted to impeach a Supreme Court justice, if I remember. Uh, was it was the Douglas, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> it was not a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah, he wasn't talking about Nixon, if I, if I recall. No, no. <laughs> that was when he was in Congress. He actually, yeah. yeah had advocated the impeachment of a sitting Supreme Court justice. It didn't go anywhere. Yeah, actually, one thing, I, I, I don't know what you think about this, Mark. One thing I argue in my book is uh, we have been maybe living in a period, maybe it's even accelerating, where this idea that it's the Supreme Court that should interpret the Constitution and has a sort of supremacy over the branches, it's gained more and more favor. Uh, and the court itself has done more and more things to try to reinforce that. And I do think there is some truth not to the standard for it is setting out, but at least to the idea that the other branches get to interpret the Constitution too. And that when it comes to the definition of what's a high crime and misdemeanor, the House really does interpret that question, but so does the Senate when they choose to acquit. I don't think Ford was right though, that it means whatever the House thinks or whatever the Senate thinks. That's just a real, actually you think about that's just like the, that's just locating which institution decides. But even the House and the Senate then, I think, have to apply their good faith, uh, best effort to try to say, well, what do we think high crimes and misdemeanor actually means? Rather than just saying, oh, we can just use it to impeach uh, presidents from the other political party. So I think that would be a good, a good test of why Ford is wrong. What if uh, you know, Democrats and Congress just said, well, we're going to interpret high crimes and misdemeanor so flexibly, we, we, we can basically remove any president who just happens to come from the other party, and we won't use the same standard with Democratic presidents. I think we would all say, well, that's not really your job under the Constitution. The founders, uh, I try to go, this too, is go through this too in the book, is at least what the founders clearly wanted to do was to create an independent president and that the impeachment power should not be transformed into a kind of parliamentary system where right, the Congress is using it as a tool to control the president because they did believe the power to remove was the power to control. And so that's why they set such a high standard with high crimes and misdemeanors and the two-thirds conviction requirement. So I I know from news reports you've been talking to the president, and I'm not going to ask you to violate any confidences there. That's You're you're, you're actually the expert, not me, on executive privilege. (laughs) So you tell me, you tell me what I'm allowed to talk about. The the president's entitled to the candor of advice from people both within the White House and outside the White House, and you have a right not to answer people's questions about what advice (laughs) you gave the president. So I'll stand by you on that one. Uh, But anyway... uh, you know, are there areas where uh, the president has acted unilaterally where you would actually advise him, and I'm asking just in general, not anything you've talked to him about in person, to step back and really try to build a consensus through public opinion and Congress to get things done? Yeah, I'll tell you the, the very issue that I think uh, drew me to the White House's attention, uh, immigration and DACA. Uh, so I thought before the Supreme Court issued its opinion the last month and a half ago, that presidents have this responsibility, as the Constitution says, to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And I think that means presidents have to enforce 
all the laws. Uh, that doesn't mean they enforce them all equally because presidents have a discretion we've long recognized to choose where to throw resources for bringing cases that are of greater public benefit. You know, we don't necessarily want to have uh, federal officers chasing down every single person who has any little bit of marijuana in their pocket. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think that means that presidents could say, I'm going to make, I'm going to set enforcement of this law to zero. And I think that's what President Obama did in DACA. So at the time of DACA in 2012, I, I thought I criticized the decision and expansion in DAPA. I sympathize. Uh, and I, actually, I believe President Trump has said publicly, he also says, I would like a deal to work out a solution for children who are brought here uh, in violation of the immigration laws, but through no fault of their own, or to parents who have American children, but the parents themselves are not here uh, legally. Uh, but I also think the Constitution only gives that power to Congress. And so I would have said, until the Supreme Court opinion came out a month and a half ago, President Trump was correct to say, I don't have any power to create a DACA and DAPA program. I've got to enforce the immigration laws, even if I don't like it, because that's the policy choice that the Constitution uh, grants to Congress. Uh, and there, instead, the better solution for immigration, I think, and I would actually like to see immigration levels lifted maybe by two times or maybe even three times their current levels. I think that the only way you get a settled, as you put it, a settled uh, permanent solution, uh, something that's not going to be uh, unstable because presidents can come and go and change it back and forth is right, set out a new visa category, set out new numbers on the DACA and DAPA programs that have it passed by Congress. And I think that's better for the recipient, the beneficiaries, right? Because if you're a DACA, DAPA recipient, you're never really sure whether your status is legal because Congress never made a decision about DACA and DAPA. So one president could always take it away. Okay. Now, I've just been messaged, and we got about four minutes left, John. So, Oh, my God. Yes, I know. <laughs> so fast, it's been yeah. a lot of fun. And uh, maybe a little bit of an out there question, but um, I think it's a good closing one. And if, if it's a short answer, we'll, we'll think of another question for you, okay? Um, what president in history does Trump most resemble in the exercise of executive powers? <laughs> Actually, after I answer, I want to hear your answer, because I think about this a lot. I think he reminds me a lot of Andrew Jackson. And let me explain why is that uh, the thing that surprised, it was, goes back to the, actually, actually the themes, you're a clever interviewer because it comes all the way back to the original theme, which was why oppose Trump in the first place? Because he was a populist. Jackson was really the first populist. You remember he, his campaign themes are very similar to Trump's, right? John Quincy Adams, you know, Boston bred, Harvard educated, conducting diplomacy with his, parents when he was 13 years old, speaks so many languages, you couldn't create a better caricature of the governing elite than John Quincy Adams. Uh, Jackson's a populist, or he represents more of the rough and tumble, new frontier population in America that sort of eventually overthrows the New England elite or the Virginia planter elite that had been running our country up through then. And Jackson, uh, you would expect, would come in and um, try to overthrow everything because he's a populist who's, who doesn't like, uh, and, but in the end, you know, he relies on, oh, and also the people who don't like him, they want to impeach him too, right? They didn't have the votes so they came up with censure, right? But they censure Andrew Jackson for his efforts to defeat the bank. But it's interesting when uh, Jackson uh, invokes the constitution, he's actually almost doing it in a defensive way. He, 
right? He issues this long, what's seen as at the time, an outrageous defense of his actions, saying, uh, I'm you know, relying on my executive power, my power over law enforcement uh, as a defense to what I did, right? To fire, right? He fired cabinet secretaries, like the treasury secretary. He moved money actually out of the Bank of the United States and back uh, to state banks. And he said, I have the statutory and constitutional power to do it. And he used the constitution almost as a defensive shield. That reminds me a lot about of, of Trump. Now, I don't know if Trump will go down historically like Andrew Jackson did, but I think he's equally a, um, a disruptor of the political order. At the same time, though, he's relying on this kind of Spartan presidential power of removal and law enforcement. Uh, or maybe like they put differently is, like, is that even before Trump came up with his signature line, Andrew Jackson's signature line should have been, you're fired. <laughs> I'm curious, Mark, who do you think uh, he most resembles? Wow, that's a tough question. I mean, I'd say Trump is uh, really an evolution in the American presidency in the modern era toward um, the vast expansion of the exercise of unilateral independent powers by presidents. Um, I've been critical of some presidents in the past, Democrats and Republicans, for the overreach of executive powers. I am of Trump as well. You and I come down a little bit differently, I think, um, you know, on some of these some of these topics, which makes for a good conversation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but picking one, I'm, I'm, I'm not having an easy time really uh, finding who that would be. I think he's absolutely unique, right, um, in the lexicon of American presidents. Yes. So, John, I've just been given the one-minute warning. I think this really wraps up the program at this point. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. You and I have known each other for a uh, good many years, going back to a conference in the 1990s, I think, at Minnesota Law School, um, where we first met. So congratulations on your success with your books and your latest one. Um, and I look forward to future conversations together. Oh, Mark, thanks a lot for uh reading the book and uh, really engaging with some very hard questions. I really enjoyed it. And I hope C-SPAN will let me interview you when you come out with your next book on presidential power. I hope so too. I'm ready. (laughs) Thank you, John. (laughs) Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at c-span.org.